Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and lift your name above every other name. You spoke everything into existence, and it was declared good because you are Lord. You are mighty and great. You made us in your image to be your image bearers for your glory. But as with Adam, we constantly try to constantly try to make ourselves Lord, not only by our actions, but by our words, our relationships, and how we treat others around us. Lord, forgive us. We are constantly trying to usurp your throne, even when your spirit convicts us otherwise. Lord, please break us and help us realize the putrid smell of our sin. Please shatter our hardened hearts. We know we cannot do this on our own, but it is the work of your Holy Spirit and we submit to you. Lord, you saw your people defiling your great name. In your infinite wisdom and love, you sent your son, Jesus, to be the substitutionary atonement for our sin. Thank you. For we know it is only by your grace alone, through, your faith, or through faith alone, in Christ alone, for your glory alone, that you have called us to yourself. Because of this, we confidently come to you you who commands the sun to rise and the rain to fall and knows every hair on our head, hears our prayers. Lord, we pray for the chaos that is all around us, that your will be done. Lord, please strengthen your church in the midst of an increasingly hostile world. Please give comfort to those who are yours. We pray for Brian Winchester at Saving Grace Church. We please uh, give him and the elders wisdom and discernment as they lead your people. We also pray this for Michael Lawrence and his elder team at Hinson Baptist. We also pray for Bud and Pam. Lord, please comfort them in this painful season with loss in Bud's family. I pray they feel the loving arms of this body. I also pray for Matt and Rachel Galt as Matt fell during a bike ride, broke his clavicle. Lord, we ask that you reduce the pain and give wisdom to the doctors in the upcoming appointments. Lastly, we pray for ourselves. Please help us in this Christmas season not to give into temptation of consumerism and remember that every breath we breathe, every bite of food we eat, and every second of every day is a gift from you. Lord, as we spend time with friends and family and give gifts, please help us remember you gave your son, Jesus, the perfect gift to save your people. Please give us boldness to share that with others. Lord, please grow our understanding in your lordship in our lives. We pray that you prepare the hearts of, for our hearts for this message you intended Hans to preach at this very moment. Lord, we are in awe that you ordained this time together before the world was formed. Lord, that we may respond with prepared hearts that you might change them for your glory. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Who is ready to worship through the ministry of the word this morning? You know that when we come into church, we can't base how we respond to how we feel. You guys know that, right? So I'll do it in a less Chicago style than Seth did. You must choose to worship the Lord proactively. We are not Pentecostals who wait for the Spirit to overtake us because we understand good theology that the Spirit is already within us. Amen? And so we don't wait to feel like worshiping the Lord. We worship the Lord because he is deserving of it. Amen? And so if you find yourself standing, thinking about something else with your mouth closed and your hands down, 
I would encourage you to proactively do something different. Amen? Amen. Not because you feel it, but because the Lord is worthy of it. Amen? Amen? Amen. So let's dig into his word with expectation because his word is life. And we come to it with thanksgiving and joy ready to receive. Amen? All right, I filled my amen quota for the day. So let's go ahead and get to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, if you can open up there with me. I, like you, am suffering from a, I think it's called tryptophan. Isn't that what's in Turkey? A uh, little bit of tryptophan in my system. And so I'm doing this as much for myself as for you that we need to purpose to step in and understand the word uh, with joy and thanksgiving. Well, this morning I want to start with the question, who are you imitating? Who are you imitating? Who has impact on your life? How you talk, how you dress, what you purchase, what you aspire to, what you believe. Who are you imitating? As humans, we probably don't know that we are imitating someone. But very few of us, if any, are so creative that we are completely unique individuals. You're most likely imitating someone. From the moment we recognize our surroundings as children, as babies, we begin to imitate. We have something in our brains that scientists have called mirror neurons, which cause us to mirror those around us. A simple example is how quickly you can make those around you smile when you smile. And try this with a baby. If you smile at a baby, they will respond. We are built to imitate. And in fact, when our desire to imitate becomes too broken, that is when things like antisocial personality or sociopathic behaviors begin to manifest because we are built to imitate. And so, friend, who do you imitate? Is it your parents? Long ago, you may have picked up habits, ways of talking, ways of looking at the world from your parents or attachment figures that you don't even know are there. Is it your friend group? Often during the teenage years of childhood development, there's such an intense desire to fit into your tribe that surrounds you that you find yourself going against your parents in order to fit in with your friends. Is it mass media or social media? You don't even know the person that you follow, but you find that you're looking to them for style. You're dressing like them, talking like them, putting on makeup like them or ordering your house, or parenting, or life after them. We are built to imitate. So who do you imitate? When we look at the biblical and even systematic theology around this idea, we see it come through the pages of Scripture in a big way. The Apostle Paul perhaps captures it best when he tells the Corinthian church to be imitators of me, he says, as I am of Christ. You see, when God created us, he created us as reflectors, as image bearers, little caricatures and idols of his glory and majesty. And so what we are purposed for is to imitate. It's to image him. But then Satan came into the picture and fed mankind a lie that this was actually evil of God. He insinuated that we too could be the one that deserves reflection. And so we should reject God and his will for mankind to reflect his nature, and instead, we build gods that reflect our own nature. Seth said it earlier in his prayer. We even get those around us to bow to our lordship, to reflect our opinions, our desires, our wants, 
in an attempt to create idols out of them. The only problem is that this is not what we were created for. It is the antithesis. So all we did then was look to God's creation and pervert it and contort it into false gods that bear no resemblance to the one true and living God. And this is the nature of original sin that we were all born into, to break us free and restore us to our true purpose for existence, as we've seen over the last few weeks, took a miraculous and merciful and gracious work on God's part. And now that we've been justified in the eyes of God and had our hearts changed, or at least that change is initiated by his spirit, now that we see he is Lord over every aspect of our lives, otherwise he is not Lord of our lives at all, we must now live as imitators of him. And this is Paul's major point in his text today. As with many of his other letters, Paul has spent most of the first half of this book of Ephesians laying out the right doctrine, or what we'd call orthodoxy, about God and man, and now he's going to use that orthodoxy to lay out the right practice or orthopraxy for the saved Christian that calls Jesus Lord. And he will do so by commanding that true followers of Jesus, true followers of Jesus as Lord, live life in a way that reflects the love of God's character the light of his holiness, and his unmatchable wisdom. And in each of these, what we will see this morning is an innate push to find these things, to understand them, to take them in and imitate them. But the only way we can do that is by the only means he can truly be known, and that is through his word given to us in the Bible. You see, if we don't have the word as the primary and quite honestly, only thing informing our opinion and understanding of God and what he requires, we are creating an idol in our own image. And this is the next major puzzle piece we need to hear in the series of the lordship of Jesus in the life of the Christian. As we now look to how we are to be sanctified under his lordship, we've spent a number of weeks building the idea of lordship. What is it? How do we actually know we're standing in it? And now, how do we be sanctified under his lordship? And so this morning, we're going to hear hear Paul's command in the midst of Ephesians to be imitators of the Lord your God. To be imitators of the Lord your God. I really have to figure out my sermons better so that I can time the kicker right when that plane goes over every Sunday. Have fun in Las Vegas, guys. Be imitators of the Lord your God. My prayer is that it will drive all of us to spend time digging deeper into God's word to understand his will and his desire as our reigning Lord rather than inflict our will and our desire upon it, which is the definition of idolatry. To inflict Our opinions and desires upon the word of God is to stand in the definition of idolatry. Now let's begin the way we often do by reading our text this morning. And we begin in Ephesians 5, and we're going to read verses 1 through 21. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, And gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. We can break this section down using the repetition of the word therefore and by the repeated imagery of walking as a Christian. That's how we can see how it's broken apart in theme and subject. And within each of these sections, there will be a natural application that points us to the importance of God's word in our lives as those who call Jesus Lord. So let's begin with the first characteristic, the first characteristic of the walk of a Christian that comes from being changed by the Spirit of God. As the new covenant chosen people of God, we are to live a life based on God's characteristic love. Live a life based on God's characteristic love. Now, as we're jumping into this part a bit blind, let's paint the background literary context of this section before we unpack it. Would you just go in your Bibles back to 4.17 through 19 with me? 4.17 through 19. We're going to break down the background here really fast. And then step into our text. 4.17 through 19 says this. <clears throat> now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, greedy to practice, every kind of impurity. Now think with me in Paul's context here. Being Jewish, he was part of God's old covenant elect or chosen people. And those outside this elect group, this chosen group of people, you were known as a Gentile. Now, as Paul stands in the new covenant, the church is God's elect, God's chosen people, made up of Jews and non-Jews. And so the label Gentiles now means those outside the elect people of God, the church. It is no longer an ethnic distinction. It is now a distinction of faith or lack thereof. 
So those who have had their hearts changed by the Holy Spirit of God are to realize their new identity and no longer walk as non-believers, as Gentiles walk. But Paul is not referring to their method of locomotion. He isn't literally walking here. He's using the word walk as a metaphor for how you live all of life. And he continues on in verse 20. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Christians are to proactively, purposefully, forcefully push against their innate desires and drives and instead proactively pursue this new spirit-led and empowered set of desires that lead to a new manner of life, a new walk. And the primary characteristic of that new life is that it manifests, it shows itself in the reflection of the God of the Bible. Now, because God has justified the Christian, and because their life is now new in Christ, there are a number of logical outcomes that should follow, that show this manifestation, this reflection of God. And these are the therefores that now follow in our section today. Because of this new life in Christ, this new heart we've been given, therefore, we should proactively be pursuing change in the way we talk, work, relate to, reconcile with, and treat one another. And it should look totally different from the world. In fact, if we are going to the world to see how we should act as Christians, we're missing the whole point because we're imitators of the kingdom of darkness and Satan, not imitators of the Lord. And so we now come to the first walk statement in our focused text here this morning. Let's read 5, 1 through 6 again. Therefore, because of this change, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The first imperative, the first command that Paul gives us is that we are to walk in our identity as the beloved, beloved children of the Father God. And as any young child does to their loving parent who they're attached to, they want to imitate them. We, therefore, are to be imitators of God the Father. Now, before we move on from this very basic image, we must pause to recognize this as the complete antithesis to idolatry. In idolatry, we have our own lordship, and we, therefore, inflict our opinions of who God is, what he wills, and what he believes is good upon him from our subjective worldview and experience. In idolatry, I tell God who he should be. And this, friends, is why it is so important to read the word of God as it was intended, 
Because if we don't read it as the author conforming us, we will read it as us conforming the author. This is why it is so important for you to understand that if you come to the word of God as an editor to remove the parts that don't make sense to you or you don't like, you are standing point blank in idolatry and sin. It is not like you're attempting partway to come to the word and hear who God is. You are in 100% rebellious sin unless you are coming for the author to conform your heart. Please acknowledge if that makes sense. Yes? This is core for us to understand. Core for us to understand. If I read a passage and I do not put it into the context of the original author or audience, if I do not look at it in the natural grammar of the wording, but I just, let's say, lock onto a word, for example, that applies to my life in the present moment, I have automatically made the scripture not about God, but about me, and I have become Lord over it. And friends, this is the natural bent of evangelical Christianity in America today. But if I read it in light of the original context, and then hear the original author's message to the original audience, and then I take it through the reflective lens of the cross and resurrection and gospel of Christ to see God's timeless principle message to his people, only then, only then, if I take it and apply it, am I using it as it was intended. Friends, this is what's called good hermeneutics, which is a fancy word for good interpretation of the literature of the Bible. Only then, if I go through this method, can I do my best to hear the original author's statement to the elect church of God? Anything else, dear friends, is to inflict your lordship on who God is. Let me give you an example. I was joking with a few of you recently about how I was shocked to find out in my 20s when I went to Israel that most likely Jesus was around five foot three or five foot four. Now, why was I shocked about that? Because I naturally thought of him as taller. He's an authority figure, for goodness sakes. And if I have to bow down to him, he must be taller, right? <laughs> and the few of you I was telling chuckled at how narcissistic that thought was coming from a tall man. And I agree with you, completely narcissistic. But friends, I'm not the only one that does this. Those of you who have a hard time when I am a little bit firmer in my preaching, I know you're the people that cut out the wrath because it just isn't nice. If you're the people that love my wrath when I preach, you're probably a person who struggles with the fact that God actually loves you as his beloved child and you're sitting in a ton of shame. In both cases, you're inflicting your subjective truth onto the word of God. And so our entire journey as Christians is to not do this and to replace it with actually finding out who he is and to not inflict our lordship onto the word and contort God to meet our demands. Only a proactive fight to cast this habit aside and hear the Bible as the word of the one true and living God will allow us to see him as he truly is the God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Friends, he is the God who ordered the destruction of the pagan nations of Canaan down to a soul. And he's the same God who came and empathized with the woman at the well. And he's the same God who will return to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And he's the same God that will provide life from his throne in eternity. If any of these seem paradoxical to you, that is because they don't make sense to your lordship. For God is vastly different than any one of us. For he is God and we are not. So we must conform our understanding of who he is to how he has informed us, not simply what makes sense to us. We cannot see God as he is until we work at reading and understanding the Bible as it was intended and cast aside the fruitless hermeneutic of reading the Bible however we dictate. Only then can we see God for who he is and begin to imitate him. And friends, this must begin by being in your Bible regularly, daily. If you're not, then you're not even at the starting line of this exercise. And I must say to you that if you're not in your word daily, then we have to wonder if the affection for the word of God is even there in a changed heart. And that is why we're working so hard as a church to equip you in how to read your Bible through the Bible studies for women and men in our church. Many of you women already understand what I'm talking about. As I walk through this, you're going, oh, that's what we do. And I've been so blessed by some of the comments I've gotten. This is way easier than I thought it was going to be. I never thought I could study the Bible to this degree, and now I can. Well, friends, that's because we want you to. That's how we're supposed to go to the Word of God, to dig deep into it and understand what it's saying to us, not the other way around. And men, I know you're being patient, and I appreciate it. We're getting there. I'm working on putting together and training the leaders right now so that you can have a similar Bible study. And we want to be a church that digs into the Word to have it conform us to its nature, to God's nature, the God, the author behind this Word. But friends, overall, the point is we must read our Bibles as they were intended to be read, not as we desire. I want to challenge you this week that if you're a person who says, man, I've got this one book that I really love, that's awesome. Go somewhere else in the Bible. Read the whole of God's word, the whole of his counsel. But Paul continues. He says, for us to imitate God, we must walk in love as the perfectly express image of the Father when he was on earth. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In these few short lines, Paul speaks of God's character through the clarity brought to us by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, God is a covenant God, and he sent his son to act as the sacrifice that would pay the price for your sin and mine. He became a fragrant offering to God by giving himself up, by sacrificing his life so that he might draw us to himself in the covenant love that he promised us from the world's beginning. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ voluntarily gave his authority, gave his power, gave his life as a substitute for you and me. Even though he had the right to it, Philippians 2 tells us. Even though he had committed no sin, 
He surrendered his life to the lordship of the Father so that he may take on the wrath of God in our place and draw us to himself so he might be enthroned as our king over his people. And we know that he is talking here, Paul is talking primarily, not about love in the subjective sense of today, but about covenant faithfulness because of the contrast he then paints for us. First, he names what should not be present in the covenant people of God. And he starts with this idea of sexual immorality. He says sexual immorality should not even be named among you because sexual immorality speaks to breaking a covenant. And friends, if you want to imitate God, the number one thing you do is you keep your word in faithfulness. That's actually the section prior to chapter 5. We could get into that to a great degree. But you keep your word in faithfulness. To be sexually immoral is to go outside the covenant relationship and covenant vows of a man and a woman ordained by God as an image and reflection of his love for his people. Covenant love is at the heart of what God's love is. He also then says, impurity or covetousness are then items that dismiss the creator-creation relationship. Impurity means that the creature, uh, excuse me, creature has determined what is good and pure instead of following the creator. That's what any impurity is. It's when we say, Lord, what you deem appropriate and good is not good. What I deem appropriate and good is good. We step into impurity. Covetousness is the opposite of the thanksgiving found at the end of verse 4. It is holding God to account that your life is not as you want it. And so you covet others' possessions, others' spouses, others' jobs, others' relationships, maybe even others' personalities. To stand in this place shows disdain for God in the midst of your discontent. Friend, he has sovereignly, providentially decided to place you in the place you're at in life. Our job is to respond with contentment and thanksgiving. The opposite, discontent, covetousness, these should not be anywhere present in the people of God who are being made holy. And then Paul finishes with a list of items that point to the way God's people speak. And we could go back and do a systematic theology on the Old Testament and realize that how God's people speak, especially in their vows and their oaths, it's what deemed them as people, or signified them as people of Yahweh. And so how we speak is part of the covenant we keep with Yahweh. God's people are to be known by the hallmark of thankfulness and thanksgiving to God because their hearts have been reestablished in that proper creator-creation paradigm. But in contrast to that, Paul paints a picture of those who are vulgar in their speech. Vulgarity in speech usually means that you have decided for yourself how words should be used. It is an idea of trying to command and control the area around you. Yes, it includes curse words and such, but it is more so here speaking of using your words to be Lord over others. And this idea is a hallmark of the enemy of God who used his communication to speak lies against God. There is no greater vulgarity than words that demean God and call him to account to us. For God's people to imitate him, remembering that he is the word of life, giving speech that builds up, encourages towards holiness, and promotes the love in which we are to be walking, that is the speech of a Christian. God, forgive me, forgive us, when we just cast this aside as if it's nothing. Friends, I know for me, this was very powerful in conviction. 
And then Paul doubles down. Anyone who finds themselves in these spots, anyone who regularly engages in sexuality outside God's design, shows discontentment rather than contentment at what God has provided, or creates a God in their own image to fill their needs, anyone who speaks in a manner that is not reflective of God, anyone who finds themselves in these places continually, regularly practicing this manner of life, what does he say? They will have no portion in the new covenant kingdom of Christ given to those who honor Jesus as Lord. Friends, that statement should shake us to our core. Because Paul knows there are those who would call his view too strict and rigid, he finishes with, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you with words that would contradict his own. You see, any message that declares that you can call Christ Lord and still once in a while practice these things, those words are empty. They're a lie. And they're leading you astray. The evil contrasted here is decidedly not obedient to the Lord. And because of this behavior, God's wrath will come upon the sons of disobedience. Disobedience. Friends, there was a big push in the 1960s for what's called subjective morality. It took this word love and it said, well, love is actually something that's subjective to the human. And so as long as we're always operating out of Love, we're operating in the highest morality. Friends, this is the core of what it is to redefine God. For the Bible says God is love. Therefore, every action from his wrath to his salvation is love. Friends, he doesn't remove his love in the act of judgment. It's present just as much as in the act of salvation. For God is the one who determines and defines love, not our subjective nature. We have to realize that God is the one who gets to say he is, who he is, not us. And so this evil that he contrasts here, it is what characterizes the sons of disobedience, the citizens of the kingdom of darkness, those who are direct enemies of the God we serve. Instead of this, brothers and sisters, we are to walk as beloved, thankful children of obedience who have been saved by God. We're to walk in reflection of the love most perfectly displayed on the cross of Calvary. We are to walk in selfless sacrifice for Christ and for one another. This is what shows us that we are actually changed at the heart, living a life with Christ as Lord. But he doesn't stop there. Secondly, Paul then says that the people of God should live a life based on the light of God's holiness. Live a life based on the light of God's holiness. Paul begins with another therefore here in verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. And he's hearkening back to our earlier context here with this therefore. Because you've become people of God, therefore... Let's read it. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. 
for anything that becomes visible is light. He begins with this comparison to the sons of disobedience from the previous line. And now before we brush past these sons of disobedience as if we totally understand what they mean, let's look at who they are. They are those who disobey God's law and rule. Those who disobey their Lord. And they're those who are inviting the wrath of God because they are diametrically opposed to him. It's not that they're just outside of the lordship of God. They're sitting opposed to him in lordship. Friends, that's what we do when we sin. We don't just step out of the lordship of Christ. We put ourselves on a throne right next to him saying that our throne is better. And this is problematic, is it not? How do we continue to call him lord at this, at this moment? In those moments, the sons of disobedience are their own lord, and therefore they're under the rule of Satan's rebellious kingdom. That sounds like a bunch of really bad people, right? We're glad it's not us. We're glad it's all those people out there, right? Well, recognize that what he's just said actually paints them as those in the midst of the church deceiving with empty words. Those in the church that say, it's just the grace of Jesus. It's okay. We're saved by grace. And grace is allowing you to be who you truly are and just, you know, make lots of mistakes. No, friends, grace is room to repent. It's room to repent. Now, these are words that may sound like they have weight and truth behind them when people say, well, no, it's just the grace of Jesus. But friends, these are empty words because they're not pointing you to the lordship of Christ. And this would be anyone that would say that you can call yourself part of the kingdom of God while you practice the very disobedience that has been listed out here. He's speaking primarily of those in the church who are antinomian. Those who believe that Christianity is about niceness rather than obedience and holiness. Those who believe that the Christian is free through grace to live however they want. And that they are not in massive sin whenever they take on their own lordship against what the Lord desires. And these folks believe that they can call Christ Lord but then walk in disobedience. I won't do it, but after casting this description here, if I said, raise your hand if you think you might fall into that clan of sons of disobedience, I think we might all have to raise our hand. So what does Paul command the truly elect of God's kingdom to do here? Do not become partners with these people. Do not link yourself to these people, especially in the most intimate of situations. A person who says, yeah, obedience, that's, that's legalism. That's just not a big, yeah, no. Paul would speak of this idea very clearly later on in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16, he says this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's speaking here of two oxen who are linked at the neck in their work because they can't separate. Where your partner ox goes, guess what happens to you? You will innately be forced to follow. And this is bad, friends, because those who are in Christ used to be living in a kingdom of darkness and disobedience. But Christ, by his death and resurrection, went into that kingdom, bound the liar with the truth of the gospel, and pillaged you and I out of it to place us in his 
kingdom, going a totally different way, the kingdom of light, worshiping his lordship. And so then, dear brothers and sisters, to continue the metaphor, why on earth would we put our necks metaphorically in a yoke with an ox that is either headed back into the kingdom at breakneck speed or an ox who never left? Friends, what does it say about you if you yoke with an ox who never left? That you're not actually in the kingdom of light. Now, let me speak to the single brothers and sisters in this room or who are listening online. Because I've now been saying this for probably 14 years from the pulpit. Brother, sister, if you are not strong enough to withstand another ox, don't link with them. So make sure that the ox you yoke together with will point you towards Christ and walk in a direction where you don't have to guess at who is Lord of their lives. My heart breaks every time I see yet another young brother or sister who says, well, they've got lots of potential. I, I really, they grew up in the church. I think they'll eventually get serious about Jesus. Yeah, they haven't been to church in a few years, but they really like it now that they're dating me. Foolishness. Quite honestly, idiocy. Because I've also sat with the person on the flip side. After I've said, and many people have said, don't marry this person, they're not a Christian. And then their hearts break because they say, you know, I've figured it out now, two years into marriage. That person wasn't a Christian. I should have listened. Don't yoke with someone who is not obviously sitting under the lordship of Christ. It will ruin you, possibly for eternity. If there is any doubt that the person you are dating is a, not a believer or is a believer, you are not the one who will somehow get them to finally be saved. They are either in God's kingdom by God's work of grace or they are not. Your job is to determine that by the evidence available. And friends, this holds true not just for dating relationships, definitely that, but also for business partners, roommates, and many other relationships. When you choose to yoke yourself to someone for these reasons, it is best to pause and ask, if I put my neck into the yoke with them, where will they lead me? Towards Christ and holiness, love and obedience, or any place else? And friends, this is absolutely true with your families of origin. You know, my parents haven't gone to church in years, but they're good people. I know that they love Jesus. I'll continue to follow them as imitation, an imitation of them. No, friends. We're to walk as those who have been birthed into the light of Christ's reign. We are to bring forth fruit of what is found in all that God has declared as good and right and true. And how do we do this? Well, Paul makes yet another application that points directly to the word of God. He says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. When we're saved by Christ and justified by him and our hearts have been changed by the Holy Spirit, our affections naturally change as well. They may not be overpowering, but they have shifted from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But a big part of the sanctification that takes those changed affections that are minuscule at the start and helps them to grow further is our partnership with the Holy Spirit in seeking out and discerning the will of the Lord. And we do that by stepping into God's word 
not defined where it agrees with our already predetermined views, but where it is going to reframe our views and mold them to God's wills and will and desires. Friends, we go to the word of God to understand what pleases him. We know that we are Lord of our own life when we go to the word to find what pleases us. Those that are Christ go to his word to find what pleases him. And then when we recoil at the thought of something we find in the scriptures because it does not fit our sensibilities or view of God, rather than casting it out, we reform our worldview based on what it declares. And to do this well, we must get skilled at reading the word correctly, as we discussed earlier. Notice that it uses the word discern here. Discern. Try to discern, verse 10. Verse, yeah, verse 10, what is pleasing to the Lord. Not just passively accept, but discern. There is work required. The original author, to the original audience, to gain the original meaning, there's work that is required. It takes work and effort. It will not come passively. There must be pursuit. Let's reread Psalm 119 from earlier. Would you go there with me? Psalm 119. Thirty-three through forty. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Now, friends, read it in the proper grammar. Who's the one who's being asked to act here? The Lord. What is the psalmist doing? begging. God, help. I need you. I need you to teach me. I need you to give me understanding. I need you to help me observe it. I need you to lead me. I need you to incline my heart. I need you to turn my eyes. I need you to confirm to me. I need you to turn me away from the reproach that I dread. The psalmist is begging for the help of God, going to the word of God to say, you need to change me, Lord, not the other way around. This prayer is at the core of what it is to be a Christian. Every day when you go to the word begging God, Lord, do not at all let me inflict my opinion or worldview on this. Lord, change me by your word. Please change my heart, for my heart is deceitfully wicked. It is angry this morning. It is broken this morning. It is sad this morning whatever it might be, and say, Lord, you have to, by your spirit, change me because I cannot change myself. And the only way you will change me is by helping me read this and understand this. Now, friends, all of us have different methods and ways of learning. This is scientifically proven. But this is where we can't be passive. And this is where, if you are a person who just listens to the word of God, 
Make sure you're sitting, listening to the word of God with nothing else. Don't do it in your car on the way from appointments. Don't be passive about studying the word of God. I got to get my five minutes in this morning. Okay, I'm done. Sit and let the word inflict itself upon you and change and conform your heart. We are to be a people who individually and then together work to strive to understand and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And part of that work is to expose the darkness that creeps in our midst, the darkness in our own lives and the darkness that displays itself in one another. It's not to hide it. It's not to sit there in shame. It's to seriously bring it before the Lord and say, Lord, here is the brokenness. It's to bring it to one another and say, here is the brokenness. So help me get into the word to understand how my heart can be changed. Then the Lord can work with it and make it useful in our sanctification. Friends, we as a church must have a greater desire for God's glory and the light of his will and desires to be carried out than we do for anything else. To be in the lordship of Christ is to desire his glory over and above our own, his success over and above our own, his will over and above our own, especially when it may involve exposing our guilt or shame or sin. Our desire for his glory to be seen in redemption should be far greater than the shame or guilt we feel. Our earlier reading from 1 John tells us clearly that God desires for us to walk in the light. Brothers and sisters, what are you holding in the dark? Maybe it's as obvious as an addiction, or maybe it's the way you interact at home with your family that you're hiding from your community or discipleship groups. Maybe it's what you watch or listen to. Maybe it's feelings of hatred or resentment and bitterness towards someone that is so deeply lodged in your heart that you have even worked to forget it and become blind to it. Friends, all of this needs to be exposed so that it can be dealt with, taken before the Lord. Otherwise, we might find ourselves unknowingly linking up with Satan and those who call him Lord. We must live a life based on the light of God's holiness. This is what happens when we're changed. And friends, this does not mean that you're going to be perfect, but it means you are always striving towards it, never taking your foot off the gas. And finally, Paul says, if we are walking in the Lordship of Christ, we will not only live a life based on God's characteristic love, and live a life based on the light of God's holiness, but we will also live a life based on the wisdom of God's law. Live a life based on the wisdom of God's law. Let's read verses 14, the end of 14 through 21. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Paul comes to the last therefore in this section, and he uses a quote that is most likely from Isaiah 60, verse 1. But it is paraphrased a bit to point to Christ. His point is to stop being passive in the way that we interact with Christ's lordship. For if we are passive, we will fall into disobedience. Our yoke will connect with someone who's in disobedience, and we will find ourselves deadened to the will of the Lord in our lives. And so we must look carefully how we live our lives. Friends, we have to admit to ourselves daily that we are blind and that only the light and illumination of God's word makes us see. And so we can't fall into this trap of thinking, I'm doing fine. I've got it. I have clarity. I know how to follow the Lord. No, we have to be in the word and amidst his people. He says we must look carefully how we live our lives. And he says make the best use of the time. Friends, we are only given one mortal life. The time between your sovereignly declared birth and your sovereignly declared death is set, brothers and sisters. It's already determined. And so use the time wisely, because if you do not, the evil that surrounds you will pull you in. And by the time is evil, what he means is, is you live in a world where Christ is not referred to as the primary Lord. Yes, in spiritual nature, he's Lord over all because of the cross, but you live in a world where people are still living under the lordship of Satan. And so the time is evil, and it desires to pull us in. And this picture should be one that sparks fear and trembling in our hearts and souls so that we sprint away from sin and into the arms of our Lord because greater is he that is in us than, great, than the one who is in the world. And Paul says that we do so again by understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now, friends, I know this may sound so rudimentary, and I can guess most likely there are some of you who are thinking, okay, okay, Hans, another sermon on the importance of reading your Bible. We get it. We go to mission, all right? We get it. But brothers and sisters, I beg of you to understand what I am saying. If we are not regularly searching Scripture to see the truth of who God is, to allow the light of God's holiness to shine into the darkest parts of our being, and searching Scripture to understand what our Lord requires of us in wisdom, then friend, your salvation is in massive doubt. For those who are saved by Christ and made his own have their heart changed so that their primary affection desires to please the Lord who has saved them. Amen. Period. If that is not you today, dear friend, if you find other objectives coming in to life that are above that, please cry out to God, as the psalmist did, to effect a work in your heart and soul. Pray that he might change your heart to desire his will and not your own. For our will, if we are passive, will always seem to overrule his. While God has given us his spirit to empower us to pursue him, he is also a perfect gentleman whose primary means of judgment is to give us over to the darkness if we choose to pursue it. So we must rage against the darkness our souls desire. As examples of living this kind of life, Paul now gives us a series of contrasting behaviors. And he begins with the command to not be foolish, but rather understand the wisdom of the will of the Lord. Notice a, a theme here. Again, brothers and sisters, I don't believe Paul is saying this is 
He's not saying this to be demeaning or sarcastic. I believe he's saying this because we need to wake up to the call from our passivity. How can we know what the will of the Lord is if we don't look for it, if we don't understand it? One of the best measurements for whether we are living under our own lordship or under the lordship of Christ is how we approach this very phrase, understanding the will of the Lord. On one side, you will have a person who says, I want to know the will of the Lord for my life. And what they mean by that is that they hold the view that God exists to serve them as a kind of magic eight ball that will guide them to the most comfortable, healthy, wealthy, and prosperous life. Their job is simply to listen hard enough so that they can find the right path that leads to that end. It's as if they're playing a cosmic game of hot or cold, and as they go closer to the perfect life, God says warmer. As they get away from it, God says colder. Friend, if that is you, if you look to the Bible and God himself to find the perfect path for a perfect life, then you have a God in your life, but it is not Jesus Christ. But then on the other side is the person who emphasizes the other side of the statement and says, I want to know the will of the Lord in my life. In other words, wherever you are, no matter what you are facing or where you find yourself, you know that the Lord of your life has a desire for how you respond to that life circumstance or that temptation or that thought. And you want to best know how to serve him and bring him glory and invite your own sanctification. Friends, this is the person who can confidently say, I have Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. This is the person who's sitting in the middle of a troubled marriage and saying, thank you, God, for this situation of sanctification. Help me understand that your will is to love my spouse and to lay down my life and stop being such a selfish person. This is the person who has a horrible boss at work. And you say, thank you, God, for this sanctifying moment where I can come to this person and love them as my enemy and show them the love of Jesus Christ. This is the person who's in poverty and says, thank you, Lord, that you have given me the riches of having to depend on you for everything because I would be blind to my need for you as a provider otherwise. This is finding the will of God in the midst of your life. A good friend of mine years ago went to this speaker and said to the speaker, that was a great, great sermon. I have, I have these two paths. She was in her early 20s. I, I can go be a missionary or I have this boyfriend who I can marry and love and raise a family. Which one is God's will for my life? And the speaker loved this answer. Totally something I can see myself saying. Well, God doesn't care. What? God doesn't care about the path I take for my life? No. This one, you can be obedient. This one, you can be obedient. Go be obedient. Totally different way of looking at it, isn't it? But if I marry this person, or I get this house, or I get this job, or I, I'm in this situation, or I have this, none of that matters. You need to know the will of the Lord in your life, and that is obedience to his lordship then you can confidently say, I have Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. And Paul then lays out an example as he takes on a topic that seems to be, quite honestly, a complete left turn. What does he do? He says, therefore, understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine. What? What is he talking about here? Well, 
He commands Christians to not get drunk with wine, he says, for that is debauchery. The Greek word here, debauchery, means a senselessness, a recklessness. It is the opposite, the antithesis of discernment and wisdom. It is foolishness. For when we lose our faculties because of drunkenness, we lose the God-given ability to apply the conforming truths we have learned from God's word by God's spirit. That is why drunkenness is evil. Friends, the reason that guns are evil is not because guns are evil. Guns are evil because in the hands of a person whose heart is hateful, they commit murder and take life who only God can give or take. The reason alcohol is evil is because it takes our minds and makes them believe that we can be our own Lord. We can escape our problems. We can determine truth. We can determine purity. We lose our faculties and we lose the God-given ability to apply his conforming truths that we have learned from God's word by God's spirit. That is why drunkenness is evil and it should find no place in God's people at all. So rather than recklessness, Paul is saying, we are to be careful discerning God's will and imitating God. For one, recklessness in our lives will lead to forgetting God and have a heart hardened to his rule in our lives, and the outcome will be speech that does not glorify him. But to be driven by the Spirit of God will lead to addressing one another in ways that bring worship to God and a joyful melody of heart that leads to thanksgiving to our Creator. Living a life of debauchery so that we can escape God's will for our lives is a sure sign that we are not only not saved, but worshiping at the altar of God's enemy. And we must repent. On the contrary, we are to live in wisdom and discernment because it will lead to thanksgiving to God, which is a constant reminder of our humble nature in comparison to him. But this has a second purpose as well, and that is to humble us alongside one another. And this leads to our sermon next week about the need we have for sanctification through each other. For if we look up and realize that we are face down, prostrate in worship to our Lord, we will also look to the left and right and realize we are no higher up than any of the other worshipers that are face down on the ground of that same Lord. Only he is high and lifted up. Imagine, friends, if we got that metaphor, that picture in our minds when we start to have conflict, how quickly it would disappear. Two people face down before their Lord in obedient submission. Accepting and pursuing the truth that Jesus is Lord of your life will help you to realize that one of the most surefire ways to destroy the lordship of self that creeps up in our broken hearts is to submit ourselves to his saints that surround us. And notice that the primary motivator in this, he says it right here. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Reverence for Christ's rule as our only sovereign. Friends, the word of God does not exist to make you or I more comfortable in the reign of our own life. It exists to break you and I of our lordship and conform our minds and hearts and souls and affections and behavior to the will of the Lord that pleases him as creator. Friends, God has been faithful to reveal his wisdom. He's literally written a book for us. And he's given us his nature through the gospel and through his word and through the spirit in one another. And we have it right here in our hands. 
If it is true that he has saved you and placed a new heart within you and called you to worship him by the life that you lead, then it directly follows that you are to be a person who proactively, actively, and passionately sits under the lordship of his word. For this is the only way you and I can discern and know what it is to live a life based on God's characteristic love, live a life based on the light of God's holiness, and live a life based on the wisdom of God's law. To be under the lordship of Jesus Christ is to be constantly more and more conformed to his rule in your life rather than your own. And so, friend, if you struggle to get into God's word, if you admit in the darkness when you are by yourself that you have no desire to be in his word, you just don't get it, you don't see the point of it, and it doesn't seem to speak to your heart when you read it, then you must admit to yourself that Christ is not Lord of your life. And it doesn't matter how many years you've called yourself a Christian, you must begin with prayer to God that he would give you a thirst and desire to know his word, his wisdom, his holiness, his love, and his character. Start there. Don't just white-knuckle it, because if you do, you may unknowingly harden your heart against his rule. And once you know that affection and desire for God's word is there, make sure that you're approaching his word every morning with the expectation, desire, and prayer that he would establish his rule over you more and more. For the one we are created to imitate and commanded to imitate is our holy, wise, and loving God who can only be found in the midst of his word and in the midst of his people. Mission Fellowship, we are redeemed to be imitators of the Lord our God. To do so, we must sit under God's word, not the rule of our own hearts and lordship. Let's be a church that engages that calling with every ounce of our being. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.